0: Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. This podcast, like most discussions of American constitutionalism, tends to focus first and foremost on domestic policy. But the Americans who founded our constitutional government were also focused on the need for strong constitutional government for the sake of foreign policy and national security. Today, the United States faces a host of challenges abroad. Throughout all of those challenges runs the question, of how the United States should engage with its allies and international institutions. At the same time, our constitutional form of government significantly affects how the United States as a whole creates and implements foreign policy. To grapple with these questions today, I'm so glad to be joined by two of my colleagues here at the American Enterprise Institute. Ivana Stradner is a Jean Kirkpatrick Fellow at AEI, where her research focuses on the intersection of international law and security. Previously, she was at Harvard and the University of Belgrade, and she taught law at Berkeley. Ivana, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. And Gary Schmidt is a
0: resident scholar here at AEI, where he studies America's national security and the longer-term strategic issues. And he writes on issues pertaining to American political institutions, the Constitution, and civic life. In previous episodes of this podcast, Gary and I have discussed the famous case of McCullough versus Maryland and most recently, presidential inaugurations. Gary, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Ivana, you've been writing about some of the challenges that the United States faces and the international community faces today, with particular focus on the international rule of law and institutions. Could you give us an overview of some of those issues?
1: Yes. So it's a very, very broad subject indeed. And when we think about, you know, international rule of law, the text of the Charter of the United Nations does not know such a term. But We can actually think about this whole concept as some sort of durable systems of international law institutions and norms and about, you know, and all those international commitments that can be delivered. So when we think about, for example, about international rule of law, we can think about the role of international adjudications and more broadly how the United Nations and the International Court of Justice, for example deliver all those commitments. But I cannot think of a better time actually to talk and discuss those issues than nowadays, especially because the 2021 is a very interesting year. First of all, as of January 1st, we have Russia, China, Venezuela, and a few other dictatorships that joined the United Nations Human Rights Council. On the other side, we have also have like a good news that with the Biden administration, we are back to several international treaties and organizations. So it's like a mixed bag when we are talking about international liberal order. Some people were quick to conclude that during the Trump administration, international liberal order has died. But I actually think that since 1945, if not even before with the League of Nations, we've experienced different challenges, you know, with international liberal order. So The max is, the bag is really like, again, like a mix because I think still, you know, when stakes are very high, such as use of force, we cannot expect international law to deliver fully its commitments. But for example, when stakes are moderate or low, for example, when you think about international aviation, coordination system over there works. So international law still works. But we have to be very moderate and realistic about the power of international law and international liberal order.
0: Now, as you mentioned, we're taping this just about a month into the, the Biden administration. It's succeeding an administration that took a much different stance towards international institutions. Let's focus on that for just a little bit, though. NATO still exists, and President Trump and his administration saw themselves as sort of trying to reinvigorate other countries' commitments to these things. Joe Biden and his administration have rejoined the the Paris Climate Accord. All these institutions, even the ones that the Trump administration were skeptical of or critical of or hostile towards, they still exist and the United States is now reapproaching them. How would you say those institutions have fared during the Trump administration? Is there actual damage that needs to be repaired or is it just a matter of the United States stepping away for a few years and, and now rejoining things on basically the same trajectory?
1: Yes, so the Trump team actually was very skeptical of international institutions and the potential threats to American national sovereignty. But we have to also admit that he actually signed, I think it was like a 13 international agreements only within his two-year presidency. But after that, he decided also to withdraw from different institutions such as the United Nations Human Rights Council or think about the World Health Organizations or the Paris Agreement. Some of the decisions, I think, they were very fair and wise to withdraw from different institutions, including, for example, the United Nations Human Rights Council. But I think also withdrawing from those institutions was also dangerous because it actually left opportunities for both Russia and China to accomplish their hybrid warfare goals of filling this void and influencing institutions from within inside. So actually, we should not be surprised what's happening within the United Nations Human Rights Council nowadays, or with the World Health Organizations. After all, China right now leads four out of 15 United Nations organizations. So this is actually really an opportunity for the Biden administration to rejoin those those international organizations. But I would like to cite the work of Danny Platka, who claimed actually that we need to be mindful about this. And the Trump administration should rejoin, but also to renegotiate those agreements. They should not just, you know, rejoin those agreements under China's or Russia's terms.
0: Thanks, Ivana. Gary, we'll get to the sort of structural constitutional issues in just a little bit. But just to start from your own sort of monitoring of America's foreign policy situation and the the situation abroad, what do you make of all this so far? Do you have any thoughts on state of the world? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> it stinks. No.
2: No. I mean, it's a it's a really difficult time. And it's going to be interesting to watch the administration because they've really put a whole host of things on their plate right off the bat that they want to address Iran. They're talking about competition with China in a way that's not that dissimilar from at least the competition part of it than the Trump administration. Same thing with Russia. They want to tackle climate change, re-enter negotiations of Iran and the like. And they also want to do this in a way that they can attempt to try to tie together the democratic allies in a way to make a joint effort on all these problems. The problem is going to be prioritizing these things. You're going to have to deal with allies who've got different priorities. And so how they square the head circle is going to be a really complicated and difficult topic. And then I would just... Sort of highlight the fact that, again, this is a full throat return to sort of an attempt to lead the international order by the United States. And with that agenda, it'll be costly. And so, one thing to be, we have to watch for is if you're making all these commitments, will you be spending sufficient amount of money on defense to back up those commitments? And if not, then that's another matter where you'll be going back to the allies and saying, hey, we need you to step up more in this area or that area. So, They've set a broad
0: agenda, and it's a difficult one. Well, let's talk a little bit about priorities then. And obviously, the United States' priorities are not necessarily the same as the international community's priorities or the priorities of any other particular country. I guess maybe looking at it from both directions, in terms of setting priorities, in what issue or issues, Ivana, does the United States need the international community's involvement the most, or where does it need to be most involved in the international community? And from the international community's own perspective, where does it need the United States' involvement or leadership the most?
1: Yes, so exactly what Gary Olson mentioned, that we that the United States, and especially the Biden administration now, there are so many pressing issues nowadays with Iran, with the transatlantic relations, with the Middle East, just name it, coronavirus, everywhere. And I think also international community expects a lot from the Biden administration, especially to act right now. So first things first, in terms of the transatlantic relations, for example, Biden openly claimed the United States is back, but we also have to answer where is Europe? So the same thing for multilateral institutions. Everyone expects, you know, the United States to fix the problem, but actually it's also the job of our allies. We also need to take certain steps. Even though, for example, we don't still know how different countries voted for. China, Russia, or Venezuela to be parts of the United Nations Human Rights Council. Given that numerous European states, I cannot say this with certain, but some of them probably voted for some of those countries. Those countries should also take responsibilities before international institutions, because it's not that the Trump administration himself that destroyed those institutions. Like, if for example, if you take a look at the General Assembly resolution voting, there are so many resolutions suggested by China and Russia that are supported by. European countries. So I think it really goes both ways. And in terms of, you know, the most pressing issues, I think we should absolutely not allow either China or Russia to reform the World Health Organizations or United Nations Human Rights Council, because again, it's really part of their hybrid warfare strategy And that I can discuss later on about their goals and why they are doing all those issues. I'm more than happy really to dive into this subject because that's, I think very, very important to understand the shift after Cold War and how both countries are actually using those institutions and why that matters. And again, even though the ICC, for example, again, the International Criminal Court, another pressing issue for the Biden administration in terms of multilateralism and how, whether he will go back to the Obama stance or whether he will leave the sanctions that the Trump administration imposed. So, I think these are some of the pressing issues, but again. It's also the role of our allies to help the United States to fix those institutions,
2: if I can jump in, I just want to i mean one of the things to be kept in mind is that you know when we talk about the liberal international order, its foundations and the, and the way it actually originated and worked so well for so long was because the it wasn't actually an international order, it was actually a liberal order among Western democracies, and so you had very much you know a meeting of. Minds in a lot of different respects, interests, and values. As the order is opened up to countries like China and Russia, which aren't liberal, you have this difficulty, which is the original thought was we bring them into the order and the order will begin to change how they behave, that they'll pick up the norms that the order has put down. But what's actually happened is they've entered into the order but have made lots of efforts to actually change the norms within. So they've used the actually a liberal order to <laughs> bury themselves into the order in such a way as to cause problems within the order. And it's a very difficult problem to fix because the order is not going to go away. On the other hand, you now have the fact that you're dealing with these countries that really aren't dedicated or committed to the very norms that the order was originally established for. Gary, do you want to give maybe an example or two of that? Yeah, I think, for example, what you're going to see in terms of cyber, you're going to see there's going to be a great deal of effort to try to develop norms for cyber activities. You won't be able to do it because Russia and China will, in fact, insist on certain kind of cyber norms that allow them to continue to do what they've been doing. So you're faced with the decision, do you include them at all in any kind of effort to develop those norms or be part of the international cyber system? So you're going to see a fundamental debate about whether or not the international order when it comes to the World Wide Web has to be broken up into parcels that are more consistent with democratic countries and repressive countries versus repressive countries. Or whether you try to, to have an overarching archetype that fits them all, which I tend to think is what people want to do, but the Russians and Chinese will make that very difficult to do in a constructive way.
1: Can I jump in into this and just to add to this example? Yeah, please do. I said it's actually, it's already happening because both China and Russia last year, they suggested before the United Nations General Assembly, a new treaty, it's called Cyber Crime Treaty. And on the other side, you have another resolution supported by the United States and allies that they're also suggesting like alternative approach towards Cyber International Treaty. And I'm writing right now exactly on this topic. Because that's a fascinating thing that both China and Russia, well-known countries for violating cyberspace, are suggesting such a treaty. And the real question is how can we, whether we should support such a treaty or not, whether we should put more efforts towards our allies to support the U.S. treaty or not. And I'll give you another example. Right before 2020 elections, Russia actually suggested a bilateral treaty with the United States for not intervening in each other's elections. That's really exactly like everyone laughed about this because that was like Russia obviously has like Putin has like a good humor, but that's actually part of his brilliant strategy by suggesting such a treaty. The United States not agreeing to such a treaty naturally, so he can go and use that as a leverage towards his allies to claim, you see, that was Russia that respects international liberal order, international system. We suggested such a treaty, but actually. To put a ball, you know, in America's court and to claim, but actually, it's the United States that does not want to comply and sign such a treaty. So it's already actually really happening in international system.
2: Well, we we saw it also in the World Trade Organization, which was based upon basically free trade principles, reducing tariffs around the world. And we allowed the Beijing into WTO in the, you know in two thousand, but they're not actually. A- Free trading nation. They're a mercantilist nation. So, within this body that's dedicated with one set of norms, you've allowed the second largest economy in the world to bury itself in and contort
0: the rules of the road. Ivana, your latest article is focused on what's happening in China specifically. You wrote a piece for Newsweek on the situation with China's genocide of the Uyghurs. How does that fit into the conversation that we're having? Is there a place for the United States to get involved in this issue more than it has previously? Is there a place for international institutions to do more in a way that requires the United States' participation? Mm -hmm. Or is this something that ultimately is going to be controlled by by China and there's really nothing the outside world can do about it?
1: That's a very, very pressing issue because obviously, first of all, China does not want to be labeled as a country that is committing genocide. And that's a very controversial term, really, in international relations more broadly. You know, states can handle to be to be aligned with, you know, and to be accused of committing war crimes. But it's really, really such a hard thing to say that a country is committing genocide. And that's really what bothers China. And this is why they are using really international platforms, actually, including, you know, the United Nations Human Rights Council to actually show that they are not committing genocide. But, and even international community is very polarized on this issue. The 1948 convention on genocide is quite clear. And if you take a look at, for example, I'm one of those people who believe, you know, that... China's actions against the Uyghurs actually fall within the scope of the 1948 Convention. Some of my colleagues disagree. But the real question is, what is the power of international institutions? What can we do about this? So, for example, the International Criminal Court has decided to go after the United States and Israel, let alone, you know, African nations. But it's very unlikely that it will proceed forward with a case against China even though the Uyghurs who already lived abroad, they put this case before the ICC, but the ICC decided not to proceed. Second thing, what can we do with the International Court of Justice? And this is where we can actually use international system and we should be very realistic. Like even if China loses such a case before the International Court of Justice, the reason why I'm a firm believer that we should go before the International Court of Justice actually to challenge China and to show that China does not respect international law. Because for example, if you take a look over the past few years, Beijing was very vocal and claimed that it respects you know, international system and international institutions. But I'll give you like another example with the South China Sea. When that mm-hmm. thing happened and when China lost the case, high-level official openly said that it's a piece of paperwork, nothing. So the enforcement mechanism is certainly weak. But nevertheless, China cares about global reputation. So this is another good way, I think, of challenging and showing, actually, that China does not care about international system, even though it claims that it does. In terms of different strategies, I'm not a strategist so working on, on China. So what I suggested in this also in this piece, you know, that probably the United States should not attend Beijing Olympic Games. Also, our UNDP should probably use funding and to fund Uyghurs who live abroad. So there are various different institutions that we can actually... Challenge China in terms of the enforcement mechanism in international institutions. That's a separate issue. But after all, you know, China has a Security Council veto power. So it will be really hard to enforce. But nevertheless, I think it's very important to publicly name and shame all authoritarian regimes because that bothers them, both Russia and China.
0: For those who want to read this, it's in Newsweek. It was published on February 18th by Ivana and by Bill Drexel. And the piece is titled Biden Must Not Waiver. On recognizing the weaker genocide, Gary, I cut you off a second ago. You were about yeah. To say no, I was something. just going to make you know the sort of straightforward, basic point, which is some of
2: these examples that Ivana's talking about is a good reminder that when we talk about international law, in many of the most crucial issues, we're really not talking about international law. We're talking about international norms, and the difference is law is something that you can actually enforce, and norms are much more difficult. And it reminds you that if you really want to enforce norms and therefore kind of turn them into law, you need state power to be able to do it. And so that gets you back to, for example, in the South China Sea. It's not that the, you know, sort of international bodies are going to fix the Chinese problem in the South China Sea. It'll be because the United States, Japan and European allies continue to move ships and naval ships through through the seas to confirm that, in fact, it's a freedom of seas there. So some of these issues, you just can't get away from the fact that the
0: international order depends upon order, and that depends upon state power. Yeah, Ivana, we've been talking this whole time about the international rule of law. It's what you write so much on and, and you've taught, but how much of it is really law? How should we understand this kind of law? And then we'll turn to law here at home.
1: Yes, I absolutely agree with Gary, and I'm so glad that you brought up this question because I have background both in political science and international law. So when I speak with political scientists, oftentimes they think about global international norms. And when I teach international law, oftentimes we lawyers, we perceive international law as if it's like a national law. But we have to be also realistic because every single norm, and this is the definition, has to have a disposition and a sanction and we will a sanction, that's really raises another issue, whether it is law. So it raises like a big question whether international law is law. But as I mentioned, it's very also, I find it quite interesting like when people talk about international law to think about international law as such as a, one big concept. I think when, when stakes are moderate or law, international law can be enforced and I can give you multiple examples, including international aviation agency that really helps us Fly every single day, but when we talk about, let's say, the laws of war or the use of force, things are very different. So, fun fact: since 1945, the United Nations Security Council authorized only three times the use of force. Only three times, and we've had more than 100 interstate wars. So, the real question is here: whether international is really effective, but also whether it fits modern warfare. Think so we have to absolutely distinguish between international and international norms. And oftentimes people don't do that.
2: So one of the issues that I think that gets lost in this question of enforcement is so much of the international bodies now have moved to beyond they've created bodies that act independently of the states themselves that are each to these treaties. And the problem with that isn't so much that but, I mean there's a problem with what they do and and, and what they say. But there's also a problem is that when you're divorced from the actual states that are parties to the to a treaty or an agreement, you actually disconnect the, oftentimes the incentive for those states to enforce what those bodies are, have concluded. So and one of the problems in, in these international organizations is the drive to move away from the state sovereignty being a part and parcel of the institution. But they do it at their own risk because once they do that, they also lose the capability and the interest of those states taking a greater responsibility
0: to make sure that findings are enforced. We could go on for two or three podcasts about all of this. It gets so complicated. I do want to focus on the relevance of the United States Constitution and our own institutions of government, which really do have a real effect on on the ways in which the United States as a nation engages. The issues we've been talking about. Gary, you've been you spent your career studying that as much as the national security side of things. How should we understand US institutions, US constitutional rules and norms, and how they affect our nation's posture in, in these international debates?
2: Well, when you look at the US Constitution, there are all these particulars that make it clear that the sovereignty of the United States is of paramount importance. And the most concrete example of that, obviously, is the treaty power. I mean, treaties, the founders understood, could have quite sweeping authorities in terms of what they were capable of of doing. And so the very fact that the founders decided that not only would a treaty be negotiated and signed by a chief executive, but that it would take two-thirds of the Senate to be able to consent to the ratification of a treaty. And I think this basically shows the degree to which the United States, from the very beginning, was very much concerned about maintaining its sovereignty, even though it was more than willing to sign agreements, you know, in various forms with various countries. But it did so with the understanding that at the end of the day, the state's sovereignty, the state, the constitution system itself had to be preserved in in the name of retaining that sovereignty, which is so much a, you know, sort of, at odds today with how a lot of international organizations are thought about, which reach beyond sovereignty, and also it's complicated by the sort of mixed sovereignty issue when it comes to the European Union, which you know you can't quite figure out where where the sovereignty lays. So the United States is, in some respects, kind of a throwback, but it still retains that that element, that constitutional element of making sure that American sovereignty can't be compromised.
0: Gary, the other issue that I see here is that timeless balance our nation tries to strike between stability and energy, right? And the, the balance between making commitments, but then also having elections for two years for the House, four years for the president, six years for senators. And so we have a system that's built to change, but the framers, they prized stability, stability in administration and so on. And so how can the United States make commitments abroad? I mean, so short of of treaties, how can we make commitments abroad that are credible? Are treaties the only way? And what's the upshot of that then? Should we do more treaties?
2: Well, I think I think what you've seen over time actually is an adjustment, which is that the treaty power, while still important, what's happened is for a lot of these things, administrations now instead of trying to get two thirds majority, reach for majorities in the House and the Senate under you know, congressional executive agreements. So it's a sort of, it's a majoritarian way of avoiding the treaty power in a certain respects. And so, for example, all the international trade agreements that we do now are done typically through this majoritarian vote in the House and the Senate, as opposed to the two-thirds requirement in the Senate. The second thing that's happened is you have Congress basically passing statutes and resolutions which give very broad authorities to the president to negotiate and then bind the Congress to making a quick decision about whatever has been agreed to. So that's expedited the ability of the United States to get into these international accords for better and for worse.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of two particular examples that we'll bring Ivana back into, but the two, I suppose, the two major foreign policy initiatives of the, the Obama administration in its last years were Iran and climate. And with Iran, they... They and other nations came together on this joint framework, which wasn't a treaty. I remember correctly, they came up with an, another way of legislating it, but it wasn't a constitutional treaty. It wasn't even an agreement. Right. Yeah. They created it. President Trump campaigned against it. He won. Immediately, questions about pulling the United States out, of, and it became sort of a political issue, and, and Democrats who, who had supported it in the Obama years were calling on the United States to, to remain committed to this, even though we hadn't committed ourselves with the treaty. Similarly, with the Paris Climate Accords, when Secretary of State Kerry and the Obama administration negotiated that, they sort of said, on the one hand, it was not a binding agreement that needed Senate ratification. On the other hand, they said at the time, they wanted it to, have, to be politically binding. And so there too, President Trump and his administration pulled the United States out. And we had arguments over whether or not the United States was living up to its, its commitments give Ivana a chance to jump in maybe on this. Earlier, in your sort of opening remarks, you used the word commitments and how nations make commitments, international institutions make commitments, we need to sustain those commitments. Having studied the United States from abroad and also from here, how do you see the United States' sort of approach to making these commitments in a constitutional system that actually makes it very difficult to make those long-term commitments?
1: I have to admit that I'm not an expert on U.S. constitutional law, so I think that Gary would answer this question better. I can better talk maybe about American commitments on the international stage, but I think for this question, maybe Gary.
0: Ivana, why don't you speak to that other point then, and Gary can weigh in on all of it.
1: In terms of American commitments and international community, if you take a look, for example, at a record of the United States' commitment to international assistance in 1945, It has not been really that bad. Certainly, as I mentioned, the United States used war several times without Security Council authorization, et cetera, et cetera. So numerous, you know, international scholars decided that this was a clear violation of international, but really there are arguments on both sides. To me, there is another, I think, problem more, more pressing right now. This false idea that is happening right now in international systems where you have both China and Russia that after a Cold War, for the first time we see, they're clearly supporting, you know, international system as such. And if you, for example, take a look, I'm writing about Russia quite a lot. And if you, for example, take a look at the Moscow's approach to multilateralism, it's really nothing new and dates back to this Primakov doctrine, where he basically claimed that, you know, Russia's engagement with multilateral institution is guided by this view of Russian foreign policy to shift the international system away away from the U.S.-dominated unipolar order. And think about this, there is not even equivalent word in Russian for multilateralism, which is really interesting. So when we think about all those powers, oftentimes we in the United States think through our eyes. But I think it's the, all those definitions and ideas really differ from Russia's or China's perspective. So for example, think about Russia's, you know, conceptions even of multilateralism. They are even really different from the West. And if you take a look at their false commitments to international system, think about Ukraine. That's a really great example. There was a clear violation of international law, yet, you know, Russia appeared to be a mediator and used international system actually to show that it clearly, you know, did not violate international law. However, for example, it used the 1999 bombing of Serbia that happened to be without Security Council authorization as a clear, you know, concept to to show actually that it's the United States, that it's not committing to the United Nations rule of law system. And China is doing the very same thing. You just need to go literally on Twitter and take a look at Ministry of Foreign Affairs and to say how their rhetorics have shifted recently and how they actually show that the United States is the one that is violating international laws, especially non-intervention principle and the respect of non-interference you know, in internal affairs. Yet, for example, if you take a look what both China and Russia are doing, they're doing exactly the opposite. So that's, I think, what worries me more now in international scene, that in theory, we do have a lot of commitments, but in practice, it's not. It's a pure rhetoric.
0: Maybe we'll end on this theme then. Gary, a couple of interesting points Ivana just made. One is not only do Russia and China, not only do they look at these things differently than the United States does, institutionally they are built to just operate differently on the international stage. And so, how should we think about that? And then, and then, second, I guess, the last question is: Ivana makes she makes a good point that the United States, even though it didn't make a lot of binding commitments since World War II, I mean, it's made it's made many, but could have made more. Even the ones that were formally non-binding they sort of became entrenched in US foreign policy, international law, maybe because we just had more similarities from one administration to the next. But in polarized times, I think we're seeing it'll actually become more difficult for the United States to sustain those non-binding commitments and be seen as credibly sustaining those, those commitments. And so, how do you think about those things?
2: Well. I think sort of in the constitutional sense, you had two principles at work. You had the, an executive that was given a great deal of capacity to act with discretion and dispatch, and particularly in foreign affairs and national security affairs. But then you also had this treaty power, which required two-thirds of the Senate to ratify. So you had sort of two different principles. You had the capacity to act quickly and decisively, at the same time, our word vis a treaty was to give us the kind of credibility that we would sustain, you know, whatever we agreed to. What's happened over time, however, as you point out, is if the executive has become much more of a populist institution, then your ability of the executive to dismiss the issue of credibility is greater. So, for example, you know, since the executive has apparently the constitutional power to step out of agreements and treaties, that the Supreme Court has agreed with, then what's happened is you have kind of have a loaded gun where that other end of the constitutional system, which is the credibility of the two-thirds vote in the Senate, gets undermined by a populist wins of of an American presidency. And it's only the possibility that the president worries about the long-term credibility of the U.S. that prevents
0: presidents from behaving in that way. Well, we could go on at this at much, much greater length. It'll be interesting to see, say, a year from now, a year after that, how things have actually evolved both in the Biden administration and from the standpoint of Congress and how Republicans and Democrats in Congress are approaching these issues. But along the way, I really encourage all of our listeners to read what both of our guests continue to write. Ivana Stradner, Gary Schmidt, look up both of them on the AEI website where all of their writings are published and you'll best stay informed by keeping up with their work. Ivana, Gary, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. And thanks, as always, to our audience for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential.